So one of the guaranteed rights in our Constitution is the right to a, a trial, to a, a, a public trial, a speedy trial, and a trial in front of a, a judge or jury that is impartial. And in our country, we operate uh, under the principle that all people are innocent until proven guilty. So the burden then is on the prosecution. They have to prove guilt beyond the shadow uh, of a doubt. Because we are, are human, because we're fallible, sometimes mistakes are made. Sometimes people who are guilty are declared innocent. And sometimes people who are innocent are declared guilty. It's not a, a perfect system, but of all systems, it might be the best one going. Our hope and our expectation is that everybody should be given a fair trial. Jesus didn't get a fair trial. We're continuing our series this morning in the, the Gospel of Mark, and we come to two consecutive trials. First, his trial in front of the, the Jewish, what we might call the Supreme Court. They were called the Sanhedrin. Uh, and then following that trial, his trial in front of Pontius Pilate. And neither of the trials were, were what we would call fair. Consider the, the first trial. He is being tried by a, a group of people who have been conspiring on how to kill him. Like the verdict is a foregone conclusion before the trial even takes place. So this morning we're going to continue in Mark. We're going to look at these, these two trials. And then at, at the end of the sermon, after we get through those two trials, we're going to take a hard right turn. And we're going to talk about a, a third trial. We're going to talk about our trial. The scripture says that there's a day appointed for every single one of us to die, and then comes a trial. Then comes what we call judgment, the final judgment. And so we're going to talk about that at the, the end of the sermon. So join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that your word might find us to be good soil. We pray that your word would germinate in our lives, that you would produce a good crop in us 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and I pray the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We left off at Mark 14, uh, verse 53. Jesus has now been arrested. The, they have sent the delegation out to, to capture him, and they are now taking him back uh, before this Jewish Sanhedrin. So we're going to pick it up at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards, and he warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. 
Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. This trial was an absolute circus. The only thing missing is Johnny Cochran. You know, stand up with a glove. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. It's an absolute circus. All of these people are, are bringing witness against Jesus, but their stories aren't corroborating. They're not matching up. And one witness after another, they come, and, and the, the judge and the jury in this are anything but impartial. They've been thinking, I mean, they've been dreaming of this day, how they might kill Jesus. The verdict is a foregone conclusion. And yet, being the dignified people that they are, they want to have the appearance that they're doing everything in order, that this is a, a just trial, that it's, it's being done uprightly and honorably. We know it's not. They're, they're bringing in false witnesses and and at some point, it's, it's just going so crazy that finally Caiaphas, the high priest, inserts himself into the trial. This is highly irregular. The high priest is now the one who's doing the interrogation. The judge is doing the interrogation. And I can imagine Caiaphas shooting the chief priest a look, a disgusted look, like you had one job. Coach the, the witnesses so that their stories would align, so that we could judge this could be an open, open and closed case, guilty. But finally, he inserts himself. Are you not going to answer, he asked Jesus? What do you have to say about all of this testimony? And Jesus says, nothing. He really doesn't need to. It's, been, it's obvious that it's been a circus. There are no allegations that, that he has to respond to. But then the high priest asked Jesus a question that if he chooses to answer is going to get him killed. Everything is going to turn on this one question. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the, the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, Blessed one is just a substitute for God. He didn't want to use the, the name of the, the Lord. And so he said, are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? This is a question that demands a response. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been quiet about this. In fact, he's told people, don't tell others what you've seen me do. Don't tell them that I'm the Messiah because he knows as soon as that proclamation is made, as soon as that claim goes out, uh, he's just signed his death sentence. And, and so all throughout Mark, he's saying, it's not yet time. My time has not yet come. But now his time has come. Now he's prepared for what's going to happen. And so the question demands an answer. I was thinking about that for us. There are times in our life where we are put on the spot. And in order for us to be faithful to Christ, we must answer. Being silent is not an option. 
Think about Peter, what's about to happen with Peter. He's following at a distance, and a, a slave girl, a servant girl, is going to see him and recognize him. Weren't you with Jesus? And then a second time, aren't you one of him? Aren't you a disciple? And then even a third time, surely you're a Galilean. You're one of them. The question has to be answered. He can't remain quiet. Yes, yes, I am. I am a follower of Jesus. I love him. I worship him. I serve him. He is my, my Lord. He is my Savior. I believe he's the Messiah. But we know that's not how it played out. When his... His time came, he's on the spot, instead he went the other way. No, no, I'm not. Don't even know him. I don't even know him. So what about us? There, there's a time in our life where we have to answer. And, and we are blessed to live in a country where we are, are not persecuted, like many other places around the world, where this is a very real thing, that, that if you give an answer, you may be signing your death warrant. While we don't face that, we still face difficult situations where it's hard to identify with Jesus. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people today who, who hate Christians, quite honestly, just hate Christians. And, and the reason is because they think Christians are, are judgmental, bigoted, intolerant, homophobic, xenophobic, I mean, you name it. And so for you in certain, like it's easy here to identify with Jesus, we're, a, we're among people of like mind, but you step into another circle where people are hostile, and now it becomes really difficult. And so we've got that decision making, am I going to be quiet? Am I going to be passive? Or am I going to lovingly and boldly say, this is who I am? I'm with Jesus. The people who are reading Mark's gospel, this is like late first century, they identify with Peter. They identify, they sympathize because for them, this is, this is their life, especially those living in, in Rome. Like, are, are you one of them? And they know, yes, if I, I answer yes, things might not go well for me. So this is a moment where Jesus is asked a question that he has to answer. And the question is just hanging in the air. Are you one of them? Verse 62. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Verse 62. I am. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some of these fine, upstanding, godly, religious men began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist. They said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. He's incriminated himself, the high priest said. We don't need any more witnesses, even though their testimony is totally garbled. He's committed blasphemy. He's claimed he's the Messiah. You all heard it. 
these fine, respectable, upstanding religious men then begin to spit on him. It's like one of the most degrading things that you can do to another person. And here they are. They're spitting on the Son of God, blindfold him, punch him, mock him. The guards take him away for the night and continue to beat him. So the first sham trial has ended. The second one is about to begin. Chapter 15, verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Guilty. Guilty. His punishment is death. But the Jews were not in a position where they could carry out that punishment. Being under Roman rule, the death penalty was something that only Rome could approve, only Rome could legislate, and so now they've got to take Jesus to the governor, to Pontius Pilate, to get his stamp of approval, which should be really easy to get. And from Pilate's perspective, one less Jew, no big deal, good riddance. So they bound Jesus, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Isn't that interesting that that's what he asked? Are you the king of the Jews? Obviously, the Jews came and they made their accusation and they chose very deliberately to use that. It's no longer, are you the Messiah? It's, are you the king of the Jews? They knew that language is going to trigger Rome. That's going to get Rome's attention. Are you the, the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? And again, there Jesus stands calmly, quietly. He seems like he's at perfect peace. And this is a little bit rattling to Pilate. He doesn't get it. Normally, when people stand before Pilate and they're on trial for their life, they respond much differently. They, they break down, they weep, they beg, they plead. But here Jesus stands calmly. Don't you understand the severity of what's going on, Jesus? Don't you know that I have the power whether you live or die? Don't you want at least to say something, defend yourself? So the night before, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did all of his worrying. Remember, he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He travailed with God all night long in prayer. And it was because of the night before that now he's able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. God answered his prayers from the night before. God gave him a peace that passes all understanding. It did not make sense that he could stand there so, so at peace, so calmly, as his life is, is at stake. And frankly, it's making Pilate a little bit nervous. You cannot walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, this great promise that we have. Psalm 23, you can't walk through the valley and fear no evil if you're not willing to travail with God in prayer. Like that's where our peace comes from. The peace that passes understanding 
It comes from God. And we've got to bring everything that burdens us, that weighs us to, to arrive at that place where we are able to walk through life in peace, in situations that, that don't make sense. How could this person be at peace in such trials? Aren't you going to answer? Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want, to re- want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Mark is telling us that Pilate knew exactly what was going on. Pilate knew this whole thing was a sham. He knew what it was that was motivating the the religious leaders. The only reason Jesus is on trial is because they're jealous, because they're envious, because they're insecure, and they want to get rid of Jesus so that they can be in a position of power one more time. Pilate knows it. It really makes you think, uh, you know, how the world becomes cynical towards Christians. Like, how does that happen? This is how it happens. The curtain gets pulled back, and, and there's these moments where the world sees, we, we see what you're doing. All you care about is power. And when your power is threatened, you're willing to totally compromise who you are. Compromise your integrity. You're willing to lie. You're willing to manipulate And you're even willing to commit murder. Do you think ever again those Roman soldiers witnessing this trial, do you ever think that they're going to look at another chief priest and think, wow, there's a godly person? No, because the curtain has been pulled back and they see what's behind the curtain. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And so, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So he's abandoned by his disciples. Spit on, punched, mocked, beaten by the Jewish leaders. Flogged, beaten, spit on, a crown of thorns pressed in on his head, mocked. His only comfort is that his father has not forsaken him. And that too is about to change where we're going to pick it up next week, but right now I want to make that hard right turn and talk about a a third trial that the scripture says faces every single one of us. 
Hebrews 9.27 says that there is a day that is appointed for, our, to, for us to die, and then comes judgment. And now here's the thing about that trial. God has graciously given us all the time that we need to be prepared for that trial. This is a trial that we needn't sit in fear about. It's not a trial that we need to stumble into unprepared. Now is the time for us to prepare, prepare for that final trial. And so I'm going to share uh, five truths about that, that trial. This is not an exhaustive uh, list of everything we need to know about the final judgment. That would be a sermon series. But here's what I think are the five most crucial truths. Number one, there is a trial. There is a judgment day, and it is a judgment day both for believers and unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There is a day appointed for us to die, and then comes judgment. Every single one of us. We have our a time slotted on the docket where we are going to stand before, before Christ, which is the second thing we need to know. Who is the judge? Who is the judge that we're going to stand before? The judge is none other than Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 10, verse 40, 42, Peter is in the home of Cornelius, and he's sharing the gospel with this Roman soldier and his family, and he says this, he said, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And Paul writes the same thing to Timothy. Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. So we will all be judged, and the judge is none other than Jesus himself. So on the day of your judgment... When you arrive, the one in whom you will be looking, the eyes that will be looking back to you are the eyes of Jesus. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that should be a pretty comforting thought. The judge who's going to be looking back at you is none other than, than the Savior that we just spent 25 minutes worshiping. He's the one who's going to be looking back. If you don't yet know Jesus, please listen. Number three, Given that Jesus is the judge, the third thing to know about the judgment is that his judgment will be just. His judgment will be just. I said how in trials today, sometimes mistakes are made. Sometimes the guilty are declared innocent. Sometimes the innocent are declared guilty. Jesus is omniscient. Everything is laid bare before him. There will be no, no mistakes made. There will be no mistrial. His judgment will be just. The guilty will be judged guilty. The innocent will be judged innocent. It's not going to be a sham trial. No false witnesses. No uh, conspiracies. No collusions. So what about all the questions that we wrestle with? I remember when I was younger, the question was always this. What about the person in Timbuktu who has never heard the gospel? And by now, I think maybe the person in Timbuktu has heard the gospel. But what about them? What, what's going to happen to them on that final judgment? Or what about the, the Muslim or the Buddhist or the Hindu who is just as zealous and passionate about their faith as we are about ours? 
Or what about my next door neighbor who is frankly a better person than I am? It's like such a good person. Or what about those who are cognitively challenged, who don't have the capacity to understand the gospel, who can't receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or what about the young child who dies before ever coming to an age of being able to respond to the gospel? And the questions go on and on. And here is what our comfort is. Jesus, the judge, is not going to give anybody a raw deal. His judgment will be just and holy and honorable and right, and we can rest in that. Number four, unlike our legal system, where you are presumed innocent and you must be proven to be guilty, on the day of our final judgment, we are presumed guilty and we must be proved to be innocent. The burden is not on the prosecution. The burden is on the defense. Here's two reasons that I, I believe that to be true. One, the first is obviously Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the only two people that, that were ever truly innocent before the fall. And then when they fall, we understand that, that sin not only corrupted them, but it corrupted all of humanity ever since. We were born in sin. David prays in Psalm 51, like, surely I was sinful at birth. You know, I inherited this. And then we spend the rest of our lives and we just add sin upon sin. We just add to our guilt. So that's one reason we are born guilty and we add to our guilt. But the second reason comes from the book of Revelation. It's truly amazing. John has this vision of the final judgment. He sees the trial and he writes to us what's going to happen at the trial. Listen to these words. This is Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's Jesus. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. That's everybody. Great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So I'm going to say a real quick word about the books that were opened. Those are books about all of our deeds. Everything we've done, good or bad, and they are going to determine the, the level of, the degree of reward, the degree of punishment. It's another sermon. I know that raises a lot of questions. Those books are open, but then there's another book opened, which is the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is why I know that we, we arrive with a presumption of guilt. If we were presumed innocent, the book would be called the book of death. Like everybody's innocent, and now I'm going to look through the book of death and see who's guilty. And if your name's in the book of death, you're guilty. No, we arrive, everyone's guilty, but if Jesus finds your name in the book of life, then you are proven innocent. Which leads to the most pressing question, how does my name get written in the book of life? How does my name get written in the book of life? Your name gets written in the book of life through faith in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which takes us back to our passage, Mark 15, Barabbas. His trial has already taken place, guilty, and it's a just verdict. He's guilty of what he's accused of. He took part in an insurrection that involved a murder. He's been put on trial. He's been found guilty. And he is just waiting for his day where he is going to hang on a cross. And now the only way that he is taken off that cross is because Jesus now takes his place. Jesus is put on a cross. Barabbas is taken off a cross and he's released. It's just a small snapshot of the gospel And it's not even the gospel because the gospel is so much better. Because Barabbas doesn't leave as an innocent man. He leaves as a released man, a freed man, but not an innocent man. He is just as guilty as he ever was. The gospel goes a step farther. We are Barabbas. We are guilty, every single one of us. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your place because I love you. I'm going to go to the cross to take you off of it. But not only am I going to take you off the cross, I'm going to give you the gift of my righteousness. So we are not just walking around guilty and and there's a little technicality that Jesus has taken our place. No, he has given us the gift of his righteousness so that we are truly innocent. Jesus desires to write our name in the Lamb's book of life and it's a book of innocence. These are people who I have died for. These are people who have received the gift of my salvation, who have called out to me. It's amazing. Think about this. The judge, the eyes of the one in whom you're looking into, he also wants to be your lawyer. The judge wants to be your lawyer. He wants to represent you. And so we have this choice. We can arrive on that final judgment day, and there's one of two options. You get to represent yourself. And what do they say? The person who has, help me out here, uh, represents them, has a fool for a client or something like that. I know I've mixed that up. We can represent ourselves and say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, the burden of proof is on me. It's on the defense. And I'm going to try and prove my innocence because I was a really good person. And I really, you know, I was zealous and, and I helped my neighbor and I did a lot of good deeds. We can be our own lawyer Or we could appeal to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you represent me? So that day, that final day, that final judgment day, it will either be the most glorious day that you can ever imagine for all of eternity. What a way to start eternity. You'll arrive, Jesus will look at you, and he'll smile. And he'll smile because he knows you. He'll smile because he remembers, I, I, I wrote your name in my book. Welcome. Come into the kingdom prepared for you. It's going to be the most glorious day. Or it's going to be the most horrific, dreadful day that you can ever imagine. A day that you will have eternal regret for. Simply because you didn't receive the most incredible gift that God has ever given. I know I've gone a little bit long here this morning, but I have one last thing to say. Um, Scripture says Jesus is going to judge impartially. So uh, 
Everyone's going to get a fair trial. He's going to judge impartially. But I don't believe for a second that Jesus is impartial. He's not impartial. Someone who's impartial doesn't die for people so that they might be saved. Jesus has a hope of how this, this last judgment, this last trial is going to go for every single one of us. And his hope is that every single person will be saved. And so the question is, do you want to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Now is the time to prepare for that last day. Now is the time to prepare for judgment. Don't stumble into that day and don't live in fear. We don't have to live in fear about that day. God's given us everything we need to know so that we can actually look forward to that day. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this, this gift that we don't deserve. Lord, that you took our place upon the cross and that you desire to set us free and that you desire to give us this gift of, of your righteousness. Again, a gift that we don't deserve, a gift that we haven't earned. And Lord, for the many here who have received that gift, I pray that it would be real for us, that, that it would affect everything would affect how we live. It would affect how we anticipate uh, life after death. That it would help us walk through the valley of the shadow of death and have absolutely no fear. And Lord, if there are people today who have yet to, to call on your name, to put their trust in you, Spirit, I know that there are um, evil beings, there are demons at work that are throwing up roadblocks for that not to happen, objections. And we pray that you would tear every roadblock down, Lord, that we would see truth, that we would hear truth, that we would respond to your Spirit's call and call out to you, Lord, write my name in your book. I put my hope, I put my trust in you and in you alone. Yet not me, but through Christ alone. Pray this in Jesus' name.